Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. Welcome back. That was from All I Wonder by our next guest. Um, we have a very young and exciting composer on our podcast. He enjoys exploring philosophical and spiritual views on humanity, nature, and life itself. He balances contemporary and evocative textures with unconventional and experimental soundscapes. He's been performed by the Zenith Saxophone Quartet, Sputterbox, which you just heard, and The Blank Experiment. He has received commissions from numerous soloists and ensembles, including the Three Rivers Wind Symphony, Dr. Jordan Venemert, and the Hope College Wind Ensemble, and numerous middle, high, and collegiate programs. Uh, he has studied at Michigan State with David Bidenbender and uh, Zhu Tian, as well as NYU or New York University, where he studied with John Kafer, Erwin Fish, and Ira Newborn. He's a founding member and current board member of the Millennium Composers Initiative. Uh, today, we're going to talk to him about his life, uh, passion for composing, and how to be a composer in this new post-COVID, well, during COVID era. <laughs> so please welcome uh, Josh Trentadu. Hi, uh, thanks for having me, Bill. Excited Thank you so much. Oh, we're excited to have you. Uh, again, uh, if you're listening, to Hillary is ill, but uh, she'll be back soon. So, uh, but thank you so much for being here. It's really exciting. Uh, I've followed you for a little bit and uh, really enjoy your music. Um, and the the passion you seem to have for bringing new composers together and kind of highlighting not just your music, but as a group community activity, bringing other people in, which is great. Um, oh, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. I appreciate that. It's great. It's great. Um, so let's just start off from the very basics and very intro. And uh, so like, what are you, uh, what's your musical background? Do you come from a musical family? Like, what's your history? So I don't come from a musical family per se, but my mom did play clarinet when she went to school and my dad played percussion, which is where really um, my interest in pursuing percussion performance for some time came from. Um, he played percussion in college for a little bit and also in high school for a little bit and whatnot. Um, but as far as my background goes, the earliest memory I have uh, that was related to music was one day my dad and I were just messing around with this old Yamaha keyboard that he had. I think there were like 40 keys or something like that. And <laughs> yeah, it was one of those nice little carry-on ones you can bring to like gigs and whatnot. But right. it was the 90s and it had all those nice 90s <laughs> sounds and, and stuff. 
But what I remember about this particularly was that he was playing the Beatles song, Let It Be, in the background, because uh, he loves the Beatles. We grew up listening to that all the time in a number of rock bands and so on and so forth, and a lot of Star Wars, too. Yeah. But he was playing um, Let It Be in the background, and was, and I guess what happened was he was trying to get me to basically play the main riff at the beginning of it that that basically opens the whole thing on on piano and whatnot just the just the melody part uh i was maybe four five six years old at the time maybe younger maybe older something like that and what i could remember was being able to play it after a little bit of time on my own without my dad you know trying to play it out for me he was so shocked that basically he decided that there that i needed to you know start doing a lot more with music and whatnot and mm -hmm. sort of my passion grew from there with my own experiences i started out with taking piano lessons at a very early age i don't tell people this often but i did actually play violin for a year or two in elementary school but i dropped okay. it because i also yeah yeah i dropped it because i also started picking up percussion then too oh okay were the two things <laughs> yeah <laughs> as you can imagine with someone my age uh with my interest and whatnot percussion and piano was the thing that i stuck with yeah it, it just it just that no no diss on violin y'all are <laughs> you know just thinking all of those violin concerti out there <laughs> right right <laughs> but in any case that was where my interest started um as far as my musical background goes and performance was something that i stuck with through middle school through high school and through my undergrad year of college and to tell you the truth i don't perform as much anymore i at least didn't before covid started anyway and mm. with everything happening with the pandemic of course that's not really happening that much i guess the most i could say is you know when i'm creating my own audio demos of my music i'm also doing some programming myself so i'm playing a little bit of that that's the extent of it at this point okay. as far as my background goes and so you started you doing percussion and piano uh which you know that that kind of lends themselves well to each other they uh yeah. You know, if you're if you're a percussionist and you can play piano, you know, you're going to get a lot of those piano parts. <laughs> that's true. And that's actually what happened to me in high school. Um, I was in the percussion section at my high school's top ensemble for basically all four, you know, for all four of my years in high school. But right around the end of my sophomore year onward, um, my band director um, noticed that I was, you know, I could play piano pretty well, too. So um he started asking me if i could start playing his piano parts in the win ensemble which um which i agreed to and that went well he started programming more challenging repertoire with those piano parts too because oh, you cool. know now his band was capable of being able to do that you know sort of when i was able to fulfill those roles and whatnot so i have to say probably the most challenging piano part i had to play in band was um was a Donald Granton piece. Uh, I think it was called Starry Crown. I think it was called Starry Crown. I remember okay. that pretty well. We The band I was in in high school took that for their performance at Carnegie Hall. And that wow. was one of the, that was one of the pieces I remember we performed there. So yeah, that was a, that was a really cool experience being able to play at Carnegie Hall. Yeah. 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 I was a, like, I started piano at eight. And so when I got to college and did percussion, you know, my band directors are all like, "Ooh, how about you play this piano part? And well, yeah. You know. <laughs> oh, it's, <laughs> like, it's great, isn't it? You're basically the go-to person for that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, if you can play it, if you can build up your chops and do it, um, then, you know, go for it, right? It's an opportunity. 
And, oh, yeah. you know, it ended up being an opportunity for me, too, because I just remembered um, my last year of high school, um, I was asked to play Rhapsody in Blue. And that oh. was the big concert that we did at the end of the year was me just hammering out this part for Rhapsody in Blue. And Very that cool. was a pretty unforgettable experience, too. Would oh, I do yeah. it again? Probably not. Right. Because <laughs> Gershwin, what are you doing? It's yeah. so cool, but I can't do that again. <laughs> oh, I yeah. I did it the first time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, it yeah. It was a wonderful concert, though. And I will never forget that experience and opportunity. It was just absolutely wonderful. And, you know, I wouldn't, you know, that's that's not something to easily forget, you know. Oh, no, definitely. I, you know, when I was in my master's, we had Eric Whitaker come by because I, I was at Reno Ooh, and he nice. lived, you know, yeah. he's from Nevada. So yeah, he came yeah. by and, uh, you know, we were played the seal song or seal lullaby. And yeah. uh, I had to play the piano part and he like came up right next to me and was standing there. And then we started talking about how to arrange for piano. And I was just uh, like, I don't know, man. It's like, it's your piece, but it's like, sometimes, when you've got these big jumps and you want them to be legato, it's like, it, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. No, well, it's cool. There's a pretty masterful technique there. But, oh, yeah. that's amazing. That's the other thing that I loved, um, too. I have to agree with you on that. Just the opportunity to be able to work with other living composers on their music. Mm-hmm. Um, one experience I had playing a piano part in high school, um, Michigan State's Wind Symphony was playing... Oh, Earth, Oh, Stars. Mm. And David Mazlanka was there as the guest composer. He was able to come by to my high school and work with wow. us because we were playing his piece, Traveler, which is a pretty involved piano part, too. And I remember just just being absolutely mesmerized by his entire presence there. I don't know if you've met Mazlanka, but, you know. Oh, yeah. You're in a, when you were in a room with him, the whole mood just changed. You were just transported to this a completely different realm of existence, quite oh, honestly. Oh, yeah. He um, has a presence. Given I mean... Yeah. He had a very particular view of humanity, of nature, of spirituality that, you know, just really stuck with me. And you could feel that through the music, too, especially when he worked with groups. Um, and I just remember being so mesmerized by, you know, by that whole experience and, uh, you know, just working on that part. He was really attuned to that... Um, to that part that I had for piano as well for his piece because uh Traveler has a very involved piano part especially at the end when everything just sort of dies away and whatnot mm. so that's one experience I definitely won't forget either yeah working with living composers is fantastic more people should do oh, it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> oh definitely true but yeah yeah like I said a lot of really a lot of really wonderful experiences quite honestly yeah and it's surprising also how few people think about the piano when it comes to like a wind ensemble or a concert band, you know? Um, They just, you know, when you ask someone what's in a concert band or a wind ensemble, they instantly think of all the the wind instruments and there's the typical brass instruments or typical percussion, you know? Uh, And then you're like, yeah. And then sometimes there's a harp and even sometimes there's a piano, more often there's a piano and people are like, what? Like, why would you play piano in a wind ensemble or a concert band, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I'm sure that some have probably asked, 
that same question for playing piano in an orchestra. But to be fair, yeah. the orchestra rep has about 300 or 400 extra years of repertoire that exactly. eventually <laughs> involves piano and a bunch of piano concerti too. So it's like, you know, sort of goes hand in hand. It just depends on how you use it. I mean, with, with my own upper level compositions, I try to use piano as much as I can if I think it's appropriate right. for, piece for one reason or another. But Again, it just depends on context. Sort of like what you were alluding to. It depends on context. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So So how did you get into composing from that? Like Oh uh, well, I mean, you just heard me talk about a lot of performance experiences that I had from high school. And I certainly had those with college too. It's the experiences I had at MSU's band program was just fantastic. Um all of that sort of lended itself more on the, more for my high school experiences because I pursued a degree in undergrad and specifically in composition. I made that decision okay. basically during my high school years. At some point, it just clicked for me that actual human beings were writing this music I was playing. And I thought, well, <laughs> you know, this is really connecting with me. Maybe I can do the same for other people, too. And that would be really nice. They can get something from this that, you know, you can't necessarily speak or articulate or you know, something like that. And music had basically been a part of my life. It's not something you, it's one of those things that you can't really take away mm -hmm. no matter what um, it could be, like whether it's just listening to it or performing it or writing it or whatnot. So early on in high school, I knew that I wanted to go into music as a career, but eventually I realized that, you know, I wanted to write. I wanted to actually compose because I was hearing and playing all of these masterful works like uh, John Croyana's Circus Maximus, for example. Was, wow, yeah. It was a big one for me. I remember the first time listening to that. Just powerful. And, you know, all of that sort of led to me wanting to get into composing and whatnot. And it's a lot of hard work. It has mm -hmm. been a lot of hard work for me, too. But, you know, so far the, war, the reward of all of it has been really wonderful. And that's because it's given me a chance to just work with so many amazing people in the process. So. Yeah, yeah. It it's it's really interesting how many people who are composers say that they want to achieve the same kind of um you know Joel Joel Thompson said that he wanted to create that kind of spiritual reaction or that kind of emotional reaction from people that he felt when he was a participant rather than a composer and it's just uh i can totally sympathize with that feeling you know i want to create that feeling like yeah when, you know like you know quinn mason you know yes and so yes. you know he and i both share a huge affinity for the rite of spring and um great piece really great piece and when i was young man i was just like i had the score and i sat there with it and i looked at all the parts and how it worked and i didn't know theory worth anything but i had to know how this worked as a mechanical part you know yeah yeah so it's 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 really interesting how many of us are actually falling into that kind of idea <laughs> oh i know what you mean i have to ask though since you brought it up okay what was your first um what was the first time that you ever listened to right of spring was it fantasia because that was it for me it was i i was introduced to that piece through fantasia you know i think i probably heard it through that but I remember, like, I would always ask for, like, classical music for Christmas and birthday and stuff. Oh, nice. Okay. And so uh, I think it, I remember, I can distinctly remember, like, a, a CD or a tape that had it on there. Like, I can see it in my mind's eye, you know what I mean? And uh, just 
listening to that and just being struck by, because it had that in the Scythian Suite by Prokofiev. Um, and, you know, it was like, it was like the barbarous music or whatever, you know? So it was those two things. And it was just, that always stuck with me. And then I was like, then seeing, you know, Fantasia again, I was just like, oh, that's where it is. Except now it's out of order, you know? <laughs> Because because they had reworked because Disney and his team had reworked the music a bit with the story this different story that they were trying to tell with which if my memory serves correctly Stravinsky actually you know ended up liking it in the end oh okay like that yeah I should probably mention to you my the other thing that really got me into composing was film music mm. huge part of my background and I ended up getting a master's degree in, in screen scoring and, and multimedia as well sort of sort of um, for those reasons. You know, but um, growing up, I listened to a lot of, like, as I mentioned, Star Wars, but also eventually other films that too that really struck with me. And, um, you know, that's really inspired me to this day, in a sense. Even if it's music that, you know, not doesn't necessarily work for a concert setting, but is still able to elicit so much emotional reaction, depending on the score, in a person when they listen to it, even if it's just the music on their own, or which is the kind of film you might or something that is in, so strongly in connection with like a scene or a mood or an emotion that you remember that you still feel that even if you are listening to it. Like, you know, Inception, for example, Hans Zimmer's score for that. You hear time or you hear a lot of his uh, his other music for that and you know where it is in the scene. And you oh, yeah. It elicits that emotional response. So that was another reason that really got me into... Um, got me into composing really was was a lot of film music particularly that of john williams and of course i mean i have other inspirations and influences like Giacchino and Desplan, um john powell and rachel portman and, and whatnot um that sort of that particular bit of influence i think is lending itself to the symphony i'm working on in a way it sort of has that filmic influence on it because we're we're trying as much as we possibly can to tell a narrative through the music and whatnot with all of these pieces that are coming together. So yeah. if that makes any sense. Oh, definitely, definitely. I think music, um, I feel like, in my personal opinion, music that can tell a story or at least portray some sort of plot, so to speak, definitely seems to engage the audience, I think, at a, a, a higher level than if it was just performance piece does that make sense that does make sense to me i don't want to discredit um, no i of course i don't want to discredit the pieces out there that exist that is exploring like something particular like um for example um david Beanbender's cyclotron um mm -hmm. uh his piece for that was inspired by um was inspired by the machine itself um, and the uh, facilities at Michigan State University that was, you know, developing like developing new scientific advances and whatnot. And he wrote an entire piece like based on that. Right. Um, and in a way, it's programmatic, but it's not necessarily telling a narrative. It's exploring. It's exploring really what this what these scientific capabilities and what this machine can do, and so on and so forth. And it works perfectly. And there are other yeah. pieces out there that exist, you know, that do doesn't necessarily have a programmatic influence, but definitely succeeds, you know, on that front, depending on what it is. But I have to agree with you a little bit. I do tend to lean more towards programmatic um, 
types of compositions in my own work because that's what I'm interested in. I'm trying to break away from that a little bit in the mm -hmm. sense that of, of exploring more abstract ideas or, you know, these philosophical and spiritual views that I've been starting to explore with some of my own recent work. But even so, it um, that that's basically the gist of it, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you, definitely, that there's plenty of pieces that definitely hold their own. Um, but then to have a little bit of that uh, the, the storyline just seemed to, you know, I don't know, I guess increase the, the capture of the audience. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I do find a lot of my music kind of follows that kind of idea too as well. Yeah, I, yeah, I know what you mean by that. I do want to encourage you to have a listen to Psychotron, for example. Go check that out because it is such a good piece. Oh, it definitely. Really is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I do you, this a lot. I recommend other composers' music too, as as much as my own, because I'm just trying to get out there and listen to new works and whatnot. And the Millennium Composers Initiative has certainly helped with that a lot. You know, yeah. in some respects. So. Yeah. So you kind of talked about this a little bit, but like, who are some of your other uh, your inspirations? The people that you really enjoy. So you said John Williams. Mm -hmm. um, and David, of course, um, but who else? Yeah, so I listed off a couple of the film composers that I'm inspired by. Um, growing up, I listened to a lot of rock music, including a little bit of heavy metal, a little bit of progressive rock. So there's the bands like Queen and Rush and Dream Theater, the Beatles and Pink Floyd and, and so on. Um, going through the latter half of my high school years and my college years, I started, you know, listening to more music and it was, it turned into this wide eclectic variety. So jazz, um, indie music, like Bonnie Bear comes to mind, for example, or the music of John Coltrane mm. or, um, and, and so on. So again, like a wide variety, um, a lot of classical music growing up, but, um, that's because, you know, I was, I was, you know, studying music and I figured I probably should just listen to a lot of these pieces like The Planets or the right, again, The Rite of Spring or, I don't know, Litz Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2 or something like that. Right. But, you know, um, throughout all of that, you know, I'm still was trying to explore new music. Um, I was listening to a lot of current film music that was coming out at the time. Um... And now, so my inspirations are like, it's, it's a wide list, basically. And it, to be honest with you, it's always growing. Like the past couple of years of especially has been a lot more new music and art community, especially band music um, for composers like Omar Thomas, and Julie Giroux, and Jennifer Jolly, and, and Kate Nishimura, and so on. Um, a lot of composers in our field doing really incredible things right now, especially, you know, for situations like we're in right now with adaptable ensemble music and, yeah. and whatnot. And then basically my other group of inspirations at this point is my friends and colleagues in my composer initiative and the work, incredible work that they're doing right now. Like Kevin Day, for example, is doing really incredible work. When does the man not compose? Right, right. For real. <laughs> when does he sleep? That's the question. When does he sleep? This is the burning question in my mind <laughs> for the past year. Uh, all kidding aside, you know, he's writing really incredible music too. Like, I'm just so blessed that we have a, a, a great friendship and that we've been able to work together a couple of times. Like, um, I had an opportunity to work with him for a jazz piece that I wrote um mm -hmm. that 
I, I wrote for him and for uh, Dr. Jordan Van Hemer and for his group, the Holland Concert Jazz Orchestra. Um, they premiered that last year. Kevin played on it. The Holland Concert Jazz Orchestra was fantastic. And uh, Kevin's a great jazz pianist, too. He's not just a composer. He's a great jazz pianist. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really lucky that we're collaborating again on my symphony, too, because it involves that jazz element. And he's the pianist in the combo. And he's, you know, like everybody else in the group, he's going to freaking shred and it's going to be amazing, you know? So, you know, um, again, Kevin's an example. Harrison J. Collins, he's writing some fantastic music. Salvador Alonjacobo, he's been writing some pretty great band music recently. And now adaptable ensemble music, too. So, mm. you know, composers like them. And another friend of mine, Janae Maizano, she writes video game music and is doing incredible work in that field right now. So, you know, it's just, like I said, it's my friends and colleagues. It's a wide variety of influences and inspirations going back from, like, my early years to basically now. I'm always trying to listen to music as much as I possibly can. And the important thing I have to stress about that is just uh, going after what you said earlier about community, about, um, you know, supporting each other. And that's really something I try to do a lot now because it's very important especially oh, yeah. in a field as excuse me especially in a field as competitive as this oh yeah and almost almost oversaturated in a way you know so yeah in some ways i mean we could talk about the uh, commercialization of christmas every day and <laughs> <laughs> every year and it's all these arrangements coming out all of the uh, christmas arrangements and there's some good ones for um you know flex band now though i think julie jerule just recently put out some christmas music she has okay. some great christmas music um i just finished a, I just finished churning out a grade six or whatever it is high octane christmas piece for wind ensemble because why not let's just throw a bunch of christmas carols into a quad rock <laughs> piece and have them fight each other and go bombastic with it why not we have band music like that you know right so, right nature of what we are in the field that we're in um you know it can seem very oversaturated and yet barren at the same time you know yeah. um and i think that really lends well to the fact that you you helped create this new initiative the millennium composers initiative maybe you could maybe give a little background on that and what the purpose of it all is and stuff yeah absolutely so back in I think it was 2018 one of my colleagues and i duncan peterson jones um wanted to start 
essentially a group of composers that we could network with um, to help support each other because we were starting to realize uh, we were both in graduate school and we were starting to realize that having a network of composers like us that could support each other um, as we start to build a career for ourselves individually and make our way out there, it would be great to have this network where we could support each other and do that regardless of um, what kind of music that each composer was writing. So we started out as a group of five or six composers, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that year, it grew to about 13. Um, and as the initiative continued to grow, we sort of realized that our our uh, aim was that we were really representing and supporting composers around our age, no matter what kind of music they were writing or mm -hmm. um, what their background was or what their identity was. So with that in mind, realizing that that, you know, this is going to be the purpose of our group and whatnot for MCI, we started outreaching to basically anyone who wanted to be a part of it and, you know, did a call for composers and whatnot. So as of this year, we're a group of 39 composers. Wow. A lot of us write for, yeah, it's fantastic. And I'm just so happy to see how much it's grown and all the opportunities that have come from it. But our members have basically written everything from concert music to film music to jazz to um, electronic music and vocal music, basically anything and everything in, I don't know, the entire music field almost, uh, apart from all of the other fantastic work that they're doing in other fields too. We just had a member of MCI finish a year-long um, internship score academy program with junkie xl with tom bolkenberg she just finished that recently which is pretty cool. cool um and stemming from that we wanted to try and give our composers opportunities as well to meet with and collaborate with other chamber groups other ensembles um to work with them and you know maybe diversify the catalog a little bit give them mm -hmm. a chance to write a piece of music that they haven't written before so hence collaborations with like the Zenith Saxophone Quartet and the Blank Experiment and the Holland Concert Jazz Orchestra. And then we actually do have a collab concert with two of the members of the Zenith Quartet. They're calling themselves the Zen Duo and they're both fantastic. Um, we have a concert with them next Monday where they're going to be premiering five new works written by oh, cool. five of our members. So that's coming up. And those opportunities besides the collaborative concerts, which were, you know, still expanding upon have also outreached to like various conferences and whatnot where we're able to you know again support and promote our composers help them to build their network not just with performers and, and chamber groups but also with you know the like the midwest clinic conference for example for all mm -hmm. the band and orchestra and jazz directors looking for new music seeing what's out there in the scene and whatnot giving our composers a chance to be able to get their music out there to a different field and whatnot so um, I'm just really amazed with how much this initiative has grown in the past couple of years. Um, I'm excited to see where it's going. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot planned at the moment and, you know, pandemic notwithstanding, we've been set back a little bit, but we have a lot right. planned and, you know, I'm just really happy right now that we're able to continue the support for our members and, and so on and that we have this network and uh, for, speaking personally I've made a lot of friends from starting this initiative including like Kevin Day for example and Harrison in Salvador and you know I'm grateful to all of them it's been really helpful especially during this pandemic where I haven't really traveled since last March I right. you know all the concerts have been canceled and 
my network of friends has been basically over a Zoom call or <laughs> a social media call or, or stuff like that. And that's sort of how the symphony's been being planned too, Zoom, Zoom meetings and, and other video conferencing and whatnot. So uh, I guess our barring at that is I, you know, I'm really grateful to have the friends that I do in this field because I don't know where I would be without them right now, especially during this pandemic, you know? Oh, yeah. I don't know if you feel similarly or whatnot, but, you know, it's at least how I feel. Yeah, I mean, that was that was kind of the whole impetus behind this was that, you know, being stuck at home and, you know, you're around family all day and it's like, that that's great, but you miss the communication with other people, you know? And yeah. so yeah, that's why I, you know, I got Hillary to start this with me and uh, to be able to talk with creative people, no matter what genre that they're in, um, is so invigorating and inspiring, you know? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I have to say, I think that extends to the rest of our community as well, too. Uh, going off of that, that's the one thing I miss about, you know, all of this going on right now is the live music aspect. I have mm -hmm. not heard, the last time I heard any live music at all, I think somebody in my apartment complex was practicing <laughs> one of their instruments because we because um i'm in connecticut and i'm pretty close to where the coast guard band is oh, okay and i think the last yeah 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 so i think the last live instrument i heard other than my electronic keyboard because i play piano i play it a little bit every now and again was you know somebody practicing their violin or cello or something like that i haven't been to a concert since january of yeah. this year oh. uh because all of my plans had been canceled because of the pandemic and whatnot. It's been really disheartening. And I know it's been especially difficult for performers and the students as well, struggling to get through school right now. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, but that's the one thing I miss the most is at the end of the day, you can make up as many audio demos as you want. You can do as many adaptable ensemble pieces as you want for virtual performances, but it's not the same as physically immersing yourself in a concert hall and right. just seeing and hearing someone play and seeing a premiere or a performance or whatnot. He's, I, you know, like I miss the full band concerts, but at the same time, we can't do it right now because it's just not safe. And I get that. That's more yeah. than anything else. So, but yeah, you know, I mean, even in this, different. like, yeah, we weren't, we weren't like overly active religiously, you know, but um, even with this, you can't even like, attend church where there's a choir and it's like you know yeah. you you, yeah. you realize just how prevalent you know live music can be within your life you know when you don't have it around you all the time you know mm -hmm. so yeah 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 so um the the initiative is really cool and i love that you know you are helping with bringing like i said earlier other people into the fold and help bringing them up and um, so it's, it's kind of like, uh, maybe like a composer's commune in a way that you all work together to help promote each other and yourselves. And then you all celebrate in whatever happens or. Yeah, that's basically the gist of it. Um, yeah, it's like I said earlier, we're all just really supporting each other at this point and, um, helping each other grow, which is what I think any good, you know, community of people or network or anything like that needs as much mm -hmm. as possible so really that's a lot of a lot of mci has been sort of that proponent in a way 
Yeah, and MCI kind of reminded me of the um, the the IFCA, the Inter the Iranian Female Composers Association. Um, okay. Uh, you check if you don't know of them, check them out. They're really cool. They've got Anahita Abasi. Yeah, Anahita Abasi, yeah, Mila Faravani. We interviewed those two, and um, with that, it, you know, they helped get a. a Iranian female composers out there more to get their performances and commissions. Uh, Nila Faryarvani is actually a friend of mine and mm. um, she just received a huge commission. Um, and Anahita is having a performance actually tonight uh, in San Diego, a short opera oh, performance fantastic. with the LBO. Um, Very cool. And so it's, it's, it's really cool that there's these groups kind of uh, congealing and coming up and um, where the whole point is to be a supportive mechanism for everybody you know uh, it feels somewhat like in maybe previously past that hasn't been that way you know you know it's been very mm -hmm. um, you know music has a horrible history of nepotism <laughs> you know yes yes so and as Absolutely. A, as an academic you know it's you can you see it all the time when it comes to job postings and things you know mm -hmm. not to bash on my field or anything but <laughs> um but <laughs> you know when you see positions being filled by students of the teachers or you know student of the student of the teachers or you know because they went to the same school so it's yeah. cool that this is kind of helping rebuke that you know yeah yeah i see what you mean by that for sure it's it's what I was going back to earlier too. That level of support and community is, again, just so important to have. Because if you're not getting, as a speaking from a composer's perspective, at least, if you're not getting the music out there, you're mm -hmm. not really sharing with anyone. Like right. you're not having your friends or your family or your um, significant other listen to it. For example, then <laughs> basically, you know, you're not getting your music out there, and you're really just writing for yourself. And is that what you really want to? If unless that's what you really want to do then fine but if you want to you know be a professional composer get your music out there you have to share it right you know you you have to share it um part of the luck that i've had in uh my career has basically been because of getting my music out there mm. and because and i say that because you never know who is going to listen to it who is going to be inspired by it or, or whatnot and you know it's gotten me a couple of opportunities you know just based on that alone just been incredible yeah that's awesome so that sense of community is really important especially mm -hmm. like i said especially in this people so oh yeah You know, we're so many people are so used to the basic standard, like a performance ensemble, you know, so they've mm -hmm. got like, you've got the wind ensembles or the orchestra, you got string quartets and, you know, woodwind quintets and whatnot. Um, but what, what is an adaptable ensemble? 
Got it. So, uh, the adaptable ensemble music, from what I understand, I'm not sure if I'm right on this, but adaptable ensemble music has basically been around for a pretty long time now. There has been a resurgence of interest in it, especially because of the circumstances of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. The basic premise was that we didn't know if schools were going to be open, if they were going to do in-person learning, if they were going to be doing virtual performances, because a lot of schools in the spring basically did virtual learning and so on. Right. Uh, so essentially, a lot of us didn't know what the performance situation was going to be and how many kids or sorry, how many students were going to be in a classroom at a given time, and for that matter, how what instruments we were going to have at a given time. So I have to give credit where credit is due. The resurgence really started with this group of composers called the Creative Repertoire Initiative. Um, okay. And a couple of um, conductors, I think, were uh, had spearheaded that too. Basically, they led the charge for this resurgence of adaptable ensemble music, where essentially you're dividing music into several parts it could be three four five that's been the general but there's also music for like two or six or seven and whatnot essentially there's a bunch of um there are these parts created that represent a version of these uh, either pre-existing pieces of music that already are out there or these can be new compositions um and essentially it's written in a way that any instrument assigned to a specific part can play it and that you're still able to, you know, play through that music or perform it no matter what your performance situation with may be. So my um, work in this has been, I've arranged three of my band pieces for four part or five part adaptable ensemble, but I've also opened it up so that if say your classroom actually has people who play string parts like cello, if you have a couple mm-hmm. cellists or something like that, I have string parts for my pieces too, so you can do that. And they're oh, all just, cool. they, they adhere to one of the four or five parts, but they're written in a, idiomatically for their instruments, so it's there on the score too. And then um, the other aspect of my work in that field has been just offering like synthesized parts for kind of just going all out with the uh, technological aspect of it, because if it's going to be adaptable ensemble, um, if you're doing a virtual performance, for example, it might be nice to have some backing tracks you can play to if you don't have any percussionists, for example, mm. or you want this really cool synthy kind of keyboard sound that adds a flavor to the piece that wasn't there before in the original band version. Like, for example, I have several backing tracks for my adaptable ensemble version of the Great River Rapid Chase you know, to fulfill some of those parts that might be missing. But I also have some of these synthy parts that add to it that, you know, are playing off of this music that adds something different entirely, brings the piece to life in a different way. So there's variety there. And okay. what I love about this genre is that you can have that sort of variety. And a lot of the composers writing for this, for this field are doing immensely wonderful work with this. And a lot of the people arranging for this are, you know, same thing. They're doing immensely wonderful work. So... Yeah, basically this music is here um, for for the music to continue, really. For people that need something to play that they can still enjoy, um, that they're still able to play, again, no matter what the performance situation may be. So I have three arrangements currently published of my, as I said, my pre-existing band pieces. I also have one very high level composition that's extremely experimental for adaptable ensemble that's basically divided into families of instruments like aerophones or um 
specifically brass or strings and whatnot. That's very aleatoric and very oh, cool. um, open, sort of in, a, in its in its own way. So, uh, my experience with this has been minimal so far, but I'm still learning with mm-hmm. with every new with every new piece. I'm trying to get a couple more written before the year's over. I don't know if that's going to happen. But all the same, it's still, you know, it's still a pretty cool genre in my mind. And it just opens the uh, compositional aspects of it to a whole new level, I think. So it's definitely something I want to, you know, keep writing for even, um, you know, even if, even in the event, you know, we can, we go back to playing like full band and orchestra music and whatnot. And we circumvent this pandemic, which, you know, of course we will. And, um, and whatnot. So. Yeah, so when you write it, do you have, like, just to kind of get an idea, because I tried to figure out exactly how this might be portrayed, do you have, like, a like high voice and then, like, medium vo- middle voice or anything like that? Or um, our, how are the parts covered in such a way? Got it. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're asking. Um, That's my first general approach, what you described. Having, you know, the high high voice, a medium voice, and sort of the lower voices. Um, But with a piece that has like four or five parts or something like that, usually you might have some instruments assigned that, um, you know, might fit better with a second part or a third part. Like you have a couple of extra clarinet or trumpet parts or alto saxophones or soprano, for example, that might work well in one part as opposed to another part. And Mm -hmm. I I say that because um, some of my ensemble pieces switch melodic roles um, between various different various of the um, four or five parts and whatnot. And I do want to add to that. um, There are some fantastic templates out there for composers to use uh, for their uh, for these um, flex ensemble or flex band, um, you know, pieces that that um, a lot of people have been using recently too. And so my basis had been starting starting with those uh, templates. Um, where was I going with this? <laughs> but I, as as I said, I do want to add. I, I sort of generally think it along those lines first, but then I try to sort of stretch that a little bit, see if I can use one of the other parts uh, to bring out the melody in a way and have the others accompany. I don't just want the first part to play the melody all the time because right. for the players that would get really boring, right? right and it right. may not actually fit the composition too. Um, if I remember, I think my adaptable ensemble arrangement of the Golden Pure, the melody passes around a lot between the four parts because the because the uh, range of the melody changes where it is in in the original band version where it's placed changes too. So it goes lower or higher in the, in the ensemble and whatnot. So those are definitely things to, you know, consider if you're approaching, you know, writing for adaptable ensemble music, what can you do that engages your players, but also just doesn't assign each of the parts to a specific role. It gives mm-hmm. something, it gives everyone something to do beyond just one specific role. And to be honest with you, I think I actually approach, a lot of my music that way i try to give everybody something to do that isn't just um involved in a specific type of role just accompaniment only or you know things like that so like my music is very percussion heavy for example for that reason i want to <laughs> something to do. right right may not be the best thing in the world but you know right. in some cases with the with the transitions to, between instruments and whatnot but you know it, it's it can be nice at times 
Yeah, and it's, you know, in each family of instrument, I mean, they have their own high, middle, low voice, you know, and uh, so I, I would assume that, you know, in a way, it's a lot freer to be able to do it this way than it is to think about, okay, I need to make sure that this is here and that this, you know, this instrument, or I have to make sure that I have to double the oboe English horn or, you know, the, the, the contra bass clarinet with the, you know, whatever and stuff. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you give them, you give not just yourself, but also the performers a little more free, um, freedom in order to really feel the entire piece. Cause you and I both know, and there's many people out there who have to endure having to do the, you know, umpapas and the, you know, <laughs> every, practically every Sousa horn part ever written. Oh God. Practically. I know. One, five, one, five, one. <laughs> On offbeats. Yeah. Practically. Yeah. Oh yeah. Or the poor horned part, you know, they're always going bop, 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 bop. Yeah. That's what I was referring to. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what I was referring to. So in a way it sort of frees it up. It sort of frees up the palette when you're writing the piece. And then you have to prepare the parts because there's a lot of parts to prepare for yeah. that flexibility. And then you come across obstacles like, well, I have this line, this melody here, but I can't play that in that really high octave in English horn. I want to, if I want to break the instrument or make the English horn player mad, maybe, <laughs> you know? So, right. so with that flexibility, with that freedom that you have where you're just writing for those parts, you also have to take into consideration to, you still have to take into consideration who you're writing for. So there's a lot of instances that I explicitly state in my, you know, arrangements or my, my adaptable ensemble compositions where this octave shift happens. Or if, for example, a trombone player can't actually play this, so they actually drop out, in which case that specific part is either color, covered in another instrument that has it in that part if it's doubled or mm. it's covered in the backing tracks that come with it. Again, free. Oh, okay. it frees it up in a different way. It frees it up in your performance of it, but maybe not necessarily the writing approach to it, if, if, if that makes sense. No, oh, so totally. You still totally. have to think about those instrumental idiomatic capabilities. It's just a lot of, it's a lot of puzzle solving, but it's a lot of really good puzzle solving in a way, because in the end, you're still going to ha have this result that creates this, huge opportunity for color and sound that you're going to get from every performance of the work and practically every performance will be different too which is a type of music that i really like and again something i would definitely want to explore more oh yeah in, in, in my future works you know i'm sort of trying to do that in some ways with the bigger pieces i'm writing now but it's different and i like different honestly yeah, it's it's something that I had never really done. Um, I did kind of a similar thing. Um, we were assigned in our master's. Uh, we had to take an improvisation course. And in the course, we had to create something that people would perform with, but you couldn't use notation. Ooh, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah. And so, like, I was like, what am I, you know, I'm so, I was, you know, like raised on black notes you know so mm -hmm. it's like I don't I was it was the hardest thing I could think about uh and then when I started thinking well what else could inspire me and so I started using pictures and then from that I was just like okay so these are the types of like I knew what instruments we had in court in our class uh and 
Uh, all I said when I, when we had to perform it for the class was like, okay, you just create, react to the pictures. That's all you want. That's all I wanted, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like one of the coolest pieces I think I'd ever done. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It yeah, makes just... you think about uh, composition differently, for sure. Oh, yeah. That's it was great. just, it was so interesting to just let them react, you know? I know this isn't exactly, you know, similar to what's going on with the, the, the adaptable um, ensembles, but uh, in a way it's, you're, you're, you're handing over some of the freedom um, and still controlling the output. Does that make sense? In some ways, yeah. And it's sort of similar with these adaptable ensemble pieces. The approach to music making isn't really different per se. Right. It's just the actual compositional output, as you mentioned, that you're putting out there, you do still have some degree of control, but you still mm-hmm. also have to give up some degree of control right. and just allow your performers to make it their own, which mm-hmm. is also another kind of music I really like to try and write if I can, giving that flexibility. Improvisation really comes into hand with that, especially too, because that really allows the performers to make it their own so like something like you're describing for example i could just see the creative possibilities with that and just you know see your performers going haywire with it and just enjoying it yeah i mean it was great that most of my class that i actually started my masters with were were jazz musicians so you know because university of nevada reno has a really good jazz program and so i was one of the few classical people in there and when it came time for them to perform you know, they were able to not just react off of the pictures, but react off each other. Uh, and yeah. there was a lot of cool things, like they traded parts that they heard back and forth. And uh, you had to, as a composer, I had to think of what is this kind of story that I'm going to tell with these pictures, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so you still have a lot of control over that. It's sort of a lot of input, you know, which was really interesting. So yeah, I definitely... I definitely want to look and uh, find some of these adaptable things and see how it goes. Cause it sounds definitely sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like I said, I, you know, my experience with this has only been minimal, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm sure a lot of people have also you know, felt the same way this year. Again, where it's adapt, it's adaptation to the circumstances prevailing us right now in the community. Right. Um, and with everything going on in the world, but yeah, definitely is something worth looking into, something worth getting into as well. Like I said, I think this is something I'm probably going to continue to write for even after, you know, um, after we have that chance to be able to play like full band and orchestra music again and go back to that. It's probably still something that I will still write for and keep in the back of my head or something like that, you know. Yeah. talk about this new piece you've got where you're working on you kind of talked about yeah. it a little bit with kevin 
Uh, tell, yeah. tell us all about this, this symphony of yours. So this project started coming into my mind before the pandemic began, before all of this started. And the piece actually started out as something uh, that I wanted to explore the idea of a jazz combo and either a concert band or a wind ensemble or an, or or an orchestra, excuse me, uh, just basically playing off of each other. What would result of that? Would they be at odds? Would they be fighting a lot? It's two disparate genres of music basically clashing with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started, um, so having this combo in mind, I started asking people that I knew that I had worked with before, um, including some, you know, mutual colleagues of colleagues uh, and whatnot to see if they'd be interested in something like this. And basically we started a collaboration process that ended up being the six player jazz combo that I'm currently working with right now, including, as I mentioned, Jordan Van Kiemer and Kevin Day. Um, they're, they're part of the combo. Uh, the other members are Lily Christie um, on trumpet, Amanda Russo, who's a fantastic bass guitarist, um, <laughs> in New York City, and, you know, she's played, like, all around the world, including Brazil and whatnot. Um, Kevin Keith is our drummer. Um, again, Jordan's on saxophone, Kevin's day is on piano. And we have uh, Emily Dierichs on flute. She's the flutist in the combo, which is going to add something different to it. So, before I forget, flute, saxophone, trumpet, piano, drums, bass, guitar. Okay, that is that is everybody. I don't think I forgot the one. So that's, <laughs> those are the people I'm collaborating with on the combo, and that's how it started. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, do I really want to write a piece that's about 20 or 30 minutes of basically just jazz and concert music fighting each other all the time? Is that really worth it? Is right. that really good? Is anything really going to come from all of this fighting? Which relate to that as you will with anything going on. Is anything really going to come from all this fighting? Right. I'm a sucker for narrative stories with, um, you know, something more to it. And uh, for the longest time, this racked me and uh, that the piece was lacking something, anything that, you know, I think would have given a purpose that it would need to exist, to function like this and, and whatnot. So, um... As my collaboration continued with the members of the jazz combo, we kept talking about this. One day I thought of another idea. Well, what if we just had a seventh person that was just separate from all of this, like an outsider, from an outside perspective, if you will, you know, trying to just stop all this chaos, right? You know, right. trying to find something that will stop all of this and maybe find a way to be able to get these two groups to listen to each other, which really adds to the musical elements of it, listen to each other, and maybe even begin to live, to heal at the mm. same time. You know, find some sense of peace, like lasting peace, systemic change, and, and right. peace and whatnot. So with that in mind, um, first my combo and I realized basically during the collaborative process that all of us really had something to say with a bunch of issues going on in the world right now. So those six people in the combo each brought an issue that they're affected by that is ongoing in the world that is relevant to our political or social or economic or global climate today. Mm -hmm. So those issues are going to be discussed in the piece and they're going to have this platform that they create where they're improvising where it's just them. They're doing their own thing and they're, you know, talking about these issues and all of which, you know, all of them are advocating for, again, systemic change, justice and peace and whatnot, right? right? So this seventh soloist um, is our solo flutist for the piece, Amy Rosendahl. Uh, she's also a music therapist and a sound healing practitioner as well. She's a certified sound healer. Wow. And she brought that to the piece. 
and that changed basically everything. Yeah. You ever have that moment as a composer where you're racking your brain for an answer for how is this going to work? How is all of this going to work? <laughs> that was me for the symphony for basically about two months or something like that. And literally in our first full meeting with, with the combo and with Amy involved, she brought the sound healing aspect of it. And it's just so wonderful. And it ended up just working really well for the piece that we're full blow. It. We are basically full blown using it for wow. the work and it's going to be highlighted just as much as the jazz elements and whatnot. So all that's coming together. So she's not only playing flute for the piece, she also has this set of seven, I think, crystal quartz singing bowls tunes to the oh, keys cool. that she's going to use for the piece. Um, and singing bowls are one of a variety of common instruments that are used for sound healing on sessions and whatnot. I'll get to that in a minute. And that's basically going to be that element that helps to tie all this together. Wow. Um, first of all, I have to say, I'm really grateful to all my collaborators. Um, one, they're fantastic people. Two, they're amazing artists. And three, you know, they're, they're the ones really bringing this piece to life. You know, this is not really mine, which is all I can say about it really. Yeah, I'm writing the music, but this is really theirs. It's not really mm. just mine per se. Um, but the sound healing element, basically it's a meditative practice that, um, where musical vibrations are essentially used to help heal um, parts of one's body. Vibrations are basically used. So again, singing bowls can be used for this. Tuning forks can be used. And um, it's basically, you know, the, the gist of it is that uh, if there's a part of one's body that like doesn't resonate with their environment or their surroundings, quote unquote dissonant, if you will, with their surroundings, sound healing is used to you know, focus on that specific part. So, you know, um, eventually that part is healed, that you resonate with your environment and that, you know, essentially you find peace or, or something along those lines. It, it's again, a form of meditation that does that. So for the symphony, that's how we're going to use it really is trying to find it, trying to use it as a means to heal on a yeah. musical level for these two groups. Um, and so, yeah, you have this jazz combo you have this large ensemble. There's a version for wind ensemble. There's a version for orchestra in the works. You have this fixed media element where um, we're trying to incorporate interviews of people talking about the issues that are going to be discussed in the piece as well. Mm -hmm. um, there's poetry involved, something I'm still working on. And all of that is really going to come together to, one, talk about these issues that are ongoing in our world right now, first and foremost. But two, you know, turn it into this narrative of getting to a point where maybe we could start listening to each other again. Because, you know, there's a lot of divide between many of us right now, especially oh, yeah. in the country. So, oh, this, yeah. you know, this piece is addressing that divide in a way. Yeah. So that's, that's the essential gist of it. That's really cool. You know, I was actually kind of talking about a similar idea with Joel Thompson. And, mm. you know, he writes a lot of music that's, <clears throat> politically and socially um, introspective and retrospective. You know, mm -hmm. uh, he wrote the piece, The Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. His big thing is writing for a community, you know, and, you know, for him, music started early on and he wants to create this sense of community. Um, and within community, we have to face the things that we don't like about 
what might be going on, you know, only through facing that will we be able to actually come together more and find common grounds. And it's, it's really cool that you're going to do it this way. Um, You know, he was, he was a little, he didn't think that, you know, music could be healing in such a way that uh, makes people totally change, but at least it gives them something to think about, you know? And uh, whereas this you're 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 pulling into that that healing aspect and you know i i honestly believe that music is one of those things that really can heal you know that if you don't look at all the other aspects that are going on especially with you know like you keep saying the the times that we're living in Mm -hmm. then we're not going to be able to heal you know yeah especially if we're not listening to each other yeah especially that um yeah, I agree with all that. Absolutely. This piece in its own way is going to certainly, it's going to certainly address the community aspects of it. Again, also address, you know, the conflicts going on and many of the issues happening on our planet right now that are affecting so many of us. Mm-hmm. But it's like you said too, I want to be able to, my goal with this piece, first and foremost, is that it's not my own. Again, it's, you know, it's, it's the result of everything that my the people I'm working with are bringing to it. That's it, first and foremost. Um, but also that is, is like you mentioned, um, to leave something people to think with, to think about, excuse me, to think about, but also using it as a means to show that we can heal right. um, our divides, no matter what. Um, as long as, you know, we're not tolerating things like racism or sexism or misogyny that, you know, we all collectively, you know, combat these things and Mm -hmm. again, fight for systemic change, justice and peace. We can't like, for example, you know, we can't heal our divide and come together, but also tolerate racism and sexism and misogyny and attacks against the LGBT community. Right. That's, that's not healing. That's just, something else entirely but it's not healing yeah it's complacency (laughs) that's it that's the word i was looking for exactly right it's complacency that's not healing this you know you alluded to it already but yeah this piece in its own way is confronting the very things that many of us don't want to talk about and in a way it's doing that for me too because this is not something that i have ever talked about in my music before my Mm -hmm. music except has Two of my pieces have hinted at the possibility of something political. Um, the saxophone that I, quartet that I wrote for Zenith talked about the idea of bread and circuses, which in and of itself is a political term of right. using entertainment and small comfort, like food or whatnot, to distract people, but not, yeah, yeah to distract people, but not necessarily solve a major problem that needs to be solved, like, I don't know, world hunger or economic climate or something like that.
Right. But my music had never really been explicitly political until this piece, when at this point, when my collaborators or I, I, again, collectively came to the conclusion that they needed to talk about these very issues affecting them, and the piece became inherently political mm-hmm. in that respect. And so we're fully embracing it because it has to. It has to do that, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's a wide variety of things, this piece. But the one thing that I do want to aim for at the end is that hopefully it leaves a lot for people to think about. Um, and, you know, it again demonstrates that we can find a way to heal really effectively while, you know, fighting for these things that matter, especially, and I haven't talked about this yet, especially um, in regards to what we're going through now with the COVID-19 pandemic. This mm-hmm. piece talks about everything I just described, but it also talks about it in context with the COVID-19 pandemic and everyone that we have lost to this. Yeah, no, I think that that it's a, such a really cool idea. Um, and, you know, I think it, I think we'll see an actual, a lot of pieces coming up during, from this pandemic and these times just as politically active and interesting as you would hear from someone else. So, yeah. So, oh, Josh, I think that was great. I think it's great having you on here. It's been amazing. Um, it's been educational and inspiring and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always really cool to see a community working together to help bring up others and, um, and to help heal in a way. So it's wonderful. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me again. Um, it's been really great getting to talk with you. And I just want to stress again, that sense of community is really, really important right now more than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to keep that alive because otherwise I think our people is going to suffer if we don't. So just keep oh, definitely. colleagues, be a good person, all that, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> so, exactly, exactly. Thanks again for the opportunity and for having me on here. It was really great getting to talk with you about, you know, everything that's been going on. Perfect. For me, at least, for me, at least. <laughs> no worries. Very Thank you so much. I appreciate it too. Thank you. Thank you. Sounds of the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. There are links to everything in the episode description and also on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sounds of the World. To show support for Sounds of the World podcast, please join our Patreon, where you can have access to our after-party discussions with guests, discounted merchandise, and even more. If you have any questions, answers, or episode suggestions, please email us at soundsoftheworldpodcast at gmail.com. Well, Bill, I think I'm going to go have a beer now. Hey, there you go.